Hey, what's up? Hello. Welcome to Sounds Fake But Okay, a podcast where an arrow ace girl, I'm Sarah, that's me. And a bi-demisexual girl, that's me, Kayla. And Raina Cohen, that's me. I'm the author of a new book about platonic partnerships. Woo! Talk about all things to do with love, relationships, sexuality, and pretty much anything else we just don't understand. On today's episode, The Other Significant Others. Sounds fake, but okay. Welcome back to the pod. Hello. Hope everyone's doing well. It's guest time here on Sounds Fake But Okay, so we're going to dive straight in. Kayla, what are we talking about this week? This week, we are talking about an amazing new book that comes out in February. 13th. The 13th, just in time for the Friends, the Galentine's. Galentine's. I was going to say Friendsgiving, and I was like, that's (laughs) nothing, actually. Galentine's Day. Um, the book is The Other Significant Others, and we have Raina Cohen, the author, with us to talk about it. I'm glad to be able to talk about it with you guys. Hello. Uh, so you gave a little bit of a brief intro at the top, but if you want to expand a little bit more, let us know who you are, what the book is, why everyone should buy it, because they should, because we've read it and it was good. <laughs> I think it's much easier to have other people say something like everybody should buy it rather than <laughs> buy this book. I dare you. <laughs> uh, so I'm a journalist. I work at NPR as a producer and editor, and I work on um, a show called Embedded. So like very narrative driven stories. And I also write about social connection for places like the Atlantic. And in this book, I'm looking at probably some a kind of friendship that a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with, but I think a, a lot of People are not necessarily of a friendship that's close enough to be a life partnership and using them as a kind of case study to rethink what we feel like we know about relationships. Um, so I think it's dealing with a lot of the same kinds of questions that your podcast and I think the, like, the Ace and Arrow community um, has been interrogating for quite a while. Absolutely. I was very struck by, I think both of us while we were reading it were struck by how many of the topics covered in the book felt so familiar to us and felt so familiar to the ASPEC community. Um, I remember when I first found out about this book, I was like, is Raina like an ASPEC writer? Like I had never seen someone outside of the ASPEC community spend so much time talking about friendship in this way. Um, so it was just really exciting to see that, like, no, it's not just our community that cares about this type of thing. So that was really, really cool. Well, I was, I was sort of hoping that the book would be uniting different groups that have have really been tackling these same questions around, like, why are romantic relationships privileged by default above all other re- relationships? Why do people think that there's only one relationship that you can build your life around? And if you don't have a romantic relationship, then, uh, or aren't, like, you know, don't have a sexual relationship, that there's something deficient about you, like, you know, that's coming from, from like, the Ace Arrow world, but also people who are single, people who are non-monogamous, um, you know, a lot from like the disability community around care, like around mutual caregiving. And I mean, it, there are a lot of different kinds of groups that I, I think um, are kind of a coalition. And I happen to be coming into this as somebody who's really interested in friendship, but like pretty quickly discovered that there were like many different kinds of people who are, who had a vested interest in this. And the book Ace by Angela Chen really had a huge influence on me in terms of like exposing me to like all of the commonalities and these like, questions and perspectives from the ace community 
In this house, we love Angela Jen. She's the best. <laughs> yeah, when I um, when I saw her referenced in the book, I was like, yes, the crossover of the century. <laughs> Got so excited. I also felt like, because we, we have our book that came out about a year ago now, um, and I felt like so much of your book was really just kind of expanding on the stuff that we talked about, like in our friendship and our relationship chapters in our book. And like, it took a little bit of a more academic approach but it's not like a super academic text like you're not gonna read it and be like i'm bored like that's not that's not what the experience reading it is like at all but i was just like i was very excited to see like we are completely on the same page about so many things and it was just like it to me felt like a really great expansion of the ideas that we've talked about and so for our listeners who read our book and really liked those chapters like this is a great thing to go to to like expand your horizons yeah, absolutely. I also what I don't know if are you aware that you are quoted in our book? Uh, I was not aware that I was. You quoted are in book. you are quoted in our book. I'm sorry. I have such a back catalog of books to read. Oh, because, no, that's okay. totally fine. It's okay. You probably <laughs> had your experience of this too in the process. The, in in the process of like between writing the book and then having it come out, then you're like, shit, there are all these books that like are oh, yeah. so related. And yeah. like, I still am in the process of doing all this other work, but I can't incorporate that, you know. Yeah. Anyway, you're, you're, you've been there. Well, because when I first saw the email from your reps or whoever emailed us being like, hey, maybe you should have ran on, I saw the name and I was like, yes, I don't need to read the email. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, because I think it was some of your articles. It was from, from the Atlantic. Um, it was the, the Atlantic, Atlantic article. Yeah, yeah, that we were just like so taken by and so excited by how they um, talked about friendship. So you mentioned that obviously like you have a very vested interest in friendship. Could you talk about kind of where that started and how that might have inspired you to start this book? Yeah, I mean, there's a specific friendship that inspired me to write this book. I will say that like, I think I'm a person who's cared a lot about friends as long as I can remember and was like, always the kid who was at somebody else's house. And, you know, in middle school, my best friend, I like, spent almost every weekend like at at her house and her family was kind of my own. So um, I think I just have like a really long personal history of of uh, caring a lot about friends and enjoying making my friends friends with each other and just treating it as a relationship of value. But in the case of like this particular kind of friendship of like a partnership level friendship, I came to because of, of a friendship that I made when I moved to my city, DC. Um, and for the first couple of years of this friendship, my um, my friend who I refer to in the book is M, and I lived a five-minute walk from each other, which meant we could see each other like all the time and really become incorporated into each other's daily lives, um, into the sort of mundane things that you only really know about if you are really close with somebody, um, and also into the deeper parts of each other's personal lives, like you know, knowing each other's colleagues and families and close friends and all of that. And um, the friendship for me really surpassed what I would even put in a category as best friend. And it made me kind of want to understand why such an important relationship didn't have a term for it um, and how we could talk about each other to other people in a way that that felt like it did justice to the friendship. Um, and I, you know, kind of knew a little bit about some historical precedent for more intense friendships and knew some people in my personal life who had something like this, had seen Broad City and those kinds of shows. So I had some sense that it just like, it wasn't only us. And I wanted to find the people who were out there and, and kind of what I can learn from the friendships. Yeah, 
I just loved that it came from such a personal place for me when reading about your experience with friendship. Um was just so engaging. And the book really follows, you know, it's a nonfiction book, obviously, but it follows kind of your friendship with M, as well as the friendships of a lot of people that you interviewed. And it took a very almost narrative approach for me. I was like, I've never read a nonfiction book personally and been sitting there thinking like, oh my God, what is going to happen next? Like drawn in, like there was a plot. So I really enjoyed that you know, you kind of every chapter you're talking about a different set of friends and you're kind of using their friendship, um, like you said, as like a case study to understand different societal implications, historical implications of friendship. Um, but it turned it so much more into a story that I just I felt so engaged and drawn in. I like definitely cried several times <laughs> because the people's lives were just so real and so genuine. Um so again, the if reveal people about are... Stacy's identity and how that changed over time. I was like, I, I know. love this. <laughs> I was like, yes, Stacy. Um, yeah, but I think like if any of our listeners struggle with nonfiction and they're like, this sounds cool, but like I'm never able to stay engaged with nonfiction, I would definitely urge you to read this because I think it's so much different and more narrative driven than any other nonfiction I've read. Well, that makes me happy to hear because that's sort of like the style that I try to to use and not just because it like makes, you know, it makes you think like what's going to happen next. But I think also particularly for a kind of relationship or a group of people that like readers might not understand, it takes going deep into somebody's life to, to see themselves in it um, and to really understand the situation that, that someone is in. So you guys know this because you've read it, but for like people listening, each chapter is structured around one set of friends. So uh, you're, it's kind of all, like almost like a short story that you're reading, um, but then woven in has the like questions that these these friends, like this particular story raises. Like I write about um, a pair of friends who end up raising children together. And then that kind of opens these questions about, well, how do we figure out who make suitable co-parents? Like, do you need to be in a romantic relationship to make good co-parents to each other? Um, so yes, each each chapter is really like going deep onto people's lives and that they were willing to share um, so much about themselves because they thought it might like help other people understand the kind of situation they were in. Since so much of this book also kind of, you know, we have these chapters about these individual partnerships or relationships in general. Um, and then you kind of have your through line with M and the people in your life kind of going throughout the book. I know you said that it was really like your relationship with M that kind of inspired you to write this book. Was it always your intention to have so much of your personal story in it? Like, was that something you grappled with about whether you should include or not? Or was that always the the idea? You know, I definitely did not expect to include as much of myself in the book as I ended up including. Um, I thought that I would include some part about myself, um, about the friendship with M because it was the catalyst for the book. And so it's like, it's, it's the like, why you to tell the book, like answers that question. Why, why me? Um, and, and then I, you know, later on, I ended up uh, moving in with friends who I live with now. And, um, they're at the time one child and others two, their two children. And I was talking to a colleague about, you know, like, should I write about this? I don't know. Like, it feels kind of navel-gazy. Um, like, I don't want to be talking so much about my life. Like, other people's lives are more interesting. Um, and she had told me that, like, I absolutely had to write about my living situation because it showed that I had skin in the game, that I wasn't just kind of, like, observing people from afar. But um, I had actually – I was sort of walking the walk. 
Um, yeah. So then I ended up including that. And then, um, you know, my the nature of my friendship with M changed in the years that I was working on this. And I hadn't really planned to write about that for um, until I don't even know what the kind of point was where I decided like, yeah, I should probably write about this. Um, so yeah, I, I ended up adding more of myself over time. And it's, it's partly just like a reflection of, I started this almost five years ago and, you know, lives and relationships uh, change. And, and I was seeing my own kind of life refracted through some of the things I was exploring in the book. Mm-hmm. And there's a portion where you, where you're talking about your relationship with M and then you say in the text, like, it was only after M read this, like a draft of this book and like came back to me that I, you know, realized more about our relationship and better understood what was going on. And I think that like self-awareness is really cool. And the fact that like this, the process of writing this book did kind of help you look in on your own life and like figure out what was going on there is super cool. And that's, I think a lot of thing, a lot of what Aspects are kind of forced to do by virtue of being a spec. So it's just, it's it's always lovely to see, you know, stories of people like being able to make meaningful steps forward in their relationships, whether it was kind of by accident or whether it was, you know, something that they did intentionally. I just thought that was very cool. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, I was forced to process on the page and then also like wanted my friend to see everything that I had written about her and then got a sense of like where her head had been and what we had and hadn't been able to like fully understand about our internal experiences, uh, let alone communicate. So, um, you know, I think there are like hard things about writing about another person or another relationship when it's like by definition going to represent one perspective, even if you try to incorporate the other. But in other ways, I think it's, it really, um, made it possible for us to have like conversations that maybe we wouldn't have been able to have otherwise because like we had had to push ourselves to that level of self-awareness. Yeah. I think it's also just so important that you showed those ups and downs both within your relationship and other friendships and partnerships because I think you even talk about in the book, you know, I think there's a quote that friendships are supposed to be made of harder stuff than romantic relationships. They're supposed to be more resilient. You are kind of, you know, shamed if you have a friendship breakup because you're not supposed to do those things. Um, And I think, you know, there's just so much less structure around friendships. You know, we don't have ceremonies um, around friendships. You talked a lot about that in the beginning of the book. And so it was so important to me that it showed kind of the structure that people are putting around their friendships and the ups and downs people do have, because I think those just aren't represented enough. And so when you have people in these very deep partnerships, they may not know what to do with themselves because there really is no relationship script or kind of examples to look upon of, oh, you know, looking at your parents' relationship and trying to figure out what you should do in your own. You know, there just aren't those examples, which makes it really hard. Yeah. I mean, a couple of the uh, people that I wrote about in the book had told me that like, they were excited to read the book and to maybe meet other people who I write about because they wanted elders. Like they are, Mm. you know, around 30 at this point. And they like, they have got, you know, these, they're two um, Christian men. They have gone to um, a pastor in their community to do basically the equivalent of premarital counseling for their friendship, because that is like the closest that they can find um, for their relationship. And they can talk to and have talked to like, 
people who are long-term, you know, partners or spouses, but it is not exactly the same as the kind of friendship that they are, um, are, you know, creating from the ground up in a way that like these married couples are not experiencing. So, um, you know, people really are trying to figure the, figure things out on their own, which um, can be kind of this great imaginative territory, but also can make people feel really isolated. I mean, the, you know, the other thing that you're pointing out, Kayla, is the um, acknowledging the hard stuff. <laughs> um, that felt really important to me from the beginning because I didn't want this to be a kind of saccharine celebratory book about friendship as much as I love friendship. Uh, I, like, I think that that would be a disservice to the the complexity of friendship and that any kind of close relationship is going to have difficulties in it. Like if something is a, you know, a hundred percent good and easy, then it, it probably also tracks with some limit on the intimacy in it and the, and maybe like, you know, ability to fly away from it, like not, not necessarily committing. So, um, it, like I wanted to show what it, what does it look like when friendships change or fall apart or like, what is, what is the experience of loss? And then, uh, compounded, you know, on, on the, the, loss of the relationship of uh, in whatever form is also people not understanding the relationship in the first place, um, which felt like it's like all the more important to really understand like when things go wrong um, or get hard, what does that look like? Otherwise, you know, if I only focused on the good parts, it, it wouldn't show the full spectrum of experiences and would also, um, you know, I think it's actually in the hardest moments that you realize how important these relationships can be to people. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about in the book, you know, how much stigma there is around something going wrong in a friendship. So yeah, I think to leave that out would just kind of be compounding that. So yeah, like you said, I think that is really, really important. I think it would be dishonest too. Like this is, you know, this book is an honest portrayal of, you know, the the joys and the struggles of what happens when you kind of look beyond the the expectation of what uh, like a partnership should look like. Um, so it's, it's it's important that you included that. So as you mentioned, each chapter kind of focuses on um, a, a certain relationship and then kind of has a, has a theme or a topic around it. How did you find these people? And then how did you kind of narrow down, you know, who made it into the book, what you were going to talk about, that sort of thing? So it's a little difficult to find people who are in a socially invisible category. Um, what ended up kind of being the most helpful that I only realized kind of after the fact was identifying communities where people might be more likely to have these sorts of friendships and then finding somebody who could act as a kind of broker to that community. So, you know, perfect example of this would be the chapter where I focus on somebody who's ace. Um, I ended up talking to a um, like an acquaintance of mine, Julie Kliegman, who maybe you've encountered. Um, Love her. Yeah. And um, Julie had, like, after our conversation, like, I just wanted to sort of have a background conversation about um, asexuality and how, um, you know, how Julie was thinking about friendship and so on. Um, and Julie made a post in the meetup group for, like, NYC ace folks. Um, and that's how I found several people, including um, one person that I profile, Stacy. And, um, and and then go on to, you know, also talk about Stacey's friends. Um, and, and I did that in a couple, you know, a few different ways. I reached out to senior centers. Um, I became aware of um, a gay celibate Christian community um, where people think a lot about friendship. Um, and then I went, you know, I had written this, the Atlantic article that you referred to earlier from a, a few years back that was a precursor to the book. And I had gotten some people reacting to that. So that was also an avenue to find people 
Um, so different kinds of ways of, of, you know, trying to track people down. Um, and often like, I can't even use the term like platonic partner or queer, you know, maybe queer platonic partner in like the Ace Arrow community. But beyond that, I just sort of had to describe like, you know, like, like Oprah and Gail, like that level of closeness, they're like inseparable, that sort of thing. And sometimes people would get it, which is great. Um, so I ended up interviewing like about 70 people with these sorts of friendships. And then also I'd had a survey that, um, that dozens of people who, uh, you know, some of whom I got shocked into and didn't, uh, had responded to, um, and I originally had kind of thought I would, you know, the um, the book would be sort of a mosaic of a bunch of different anecdotes. And and one of the first note from my editor um, at the publishing house was like to try to tell fewer stories, which I didn't I, I thought would be a challenge um, because people didn't really understand these friendships. But then I tried it with one chapter and it worked. And what you know, basically, like the criteria was like, is it are there enough? twists and turns in someone's story that you're going to want to read about them for like 20, 30 pages. Um, and I also had to play some Tetris to make sure that the themes of different stories were distinct enough. So like there is a story about these two women who I just refer to very much in passing at the end of the book um, named Valentina and Yahira, who I loved. Um, uh, but I ended up I, I thought I'd write a whole chapter about them, but I realized that like thematically it was so similar to the chapter we were on aging, which had a lot to do with caregiving and illness um, that I couldn't really justify like carving out a whole chapter for them. So there were, there were sort of cases where there were people who I actually like absolutely um, found their story riveting, um, but it was either kind of repetitive of something else that like felt essential or um, it, it might work for like, uh, you know, a few pages, but it like there weren't enough things that kept changing or questions that it opened up that it would be a full um, chapter. And I was also like aware, you know, trying to um, have a range of ages and, you know, I didn't want everyone to be from like major metropolitan areas and have fancy degrees. And, you know, I wanted to have straight men like in the book, I want so there, there. That was kind of the Tetris of like um, trying to like fit all the pieces together and make them um, feel like they were both speaking to each other but distinct. Yeah, that sounds incredibly difficult, <laughs> um, and it just makes me want to read the rest of them. Like I wish, like for many reasons, obviously I wish these relationships weren't so invisible. But they're also, like I was saying, and you were saying, these are such compelling stories, and we so often hear from like Hollywood that you, you know, have to have a romantic relationship and a plot to make things compelling or you have to have certain things. And it's like, no, like friendship without any romance or sex or whatever can still be, be these incredibly compelling and just like heart-wrenching stories. I do think that uh, if any place is kind of like moving in the right direction, it is TV and to some extent films like, you know, you were just referring to Alice Osmond before we press record and like, you know, heart like a heart stopper has a lot of, you know, has like stories of friendship that are compelling. Um, there are, you know, I, I mentioned Broad City earlier. Um, there's Insecure. They're, they're kind of they're like a variety of TV shows that have uh, I think are showing that like the friendship plot can be really interesting and also um, can be evoke the like just as strong emotions and you know have the the kinds of unexpected twists and turns that 
you know, are, are usually assigned to romantic, the romance plot, but it's often, um, I don't know, it's quite, can be quite predictable and that friendship might be like a new terrain to be exploring other kinds of narratives. Yeah. I was in a meeting recently. So I work in television development and I was in a meeting recently where someone was like, we we're talking about a certain project and this person was like, well, we shouldn't include this person if like they don't serve the plot like they need to have like a future romantic relationship with this person or like they have to have and I was like no like <laughs> like that's not the only interesting thing that a person can do um and I think it's so important to have you know people like me who are a spec to talk about that but it's also so important to have voices like you and voices like so many of the people in your book who were not a spec who can also speak to that and be like, no, this is important too. Well, I'm glad you're in those rooms and I hope that it becomes easier to like make the very <laughs> obvious case that like, just think about our own lives and what are the, what are the dramas in our lives? And they don't entirely revolve around romance. Um, so, you know, like I, I'm eager for more depictions that actually mirror, mirror the realities of our lives and which kinds of relationships and stories matter. Yeah. Yeah. Like I've been in a long-term relationship for like five years. Maybe like 1% of my life drama comes from romance at this point, And the rest of it all comes from like friends and coworkers. <laughs> like that's the thing I'm gossiping about. It's like not my partner. It's <laughs> the stupid people around me. And like it doesn't – and I say drama as if that means like drama, but like it doesn't have yeah. to be like that kind of – But but also just like you know, who, like, you know, who are we most excited about or who's introducing us to things that we want to tell other people about or what are the experiences that we're sharing? Um, I, you know, I just, yeah, I guess I, maybe I have to moderate what I was saying that like TV is ahead of the curve in some ways, but I guess it depends like where you're looking and I'm sure in the writer's rooms, um, people really have to push for the like progress that we have seen. Yeah. Progress is good, but it is very slow. <laughs> so, <laughs> alas. I think we should just clip we should clip that and show it to the person you were talking to and be like, look, noted journalist, NPR journalist, published author, amazing person, Raya Cohen said, Raina Cohen said that this was very important and needed. And then maybe they'll be like, oh, shit, you're right. Perfect. Let's do that. <laughs> L.A. seems like a pretty – you're in L.A.? Yeah. Yeah. That, it seems like a really tough place. <laughs> it's the place where I live. <laughs> To be not, like, hypernormative. Yes. Yeah. It's people are always like, oh, like, do you like living there? And I'm like, it's where I live. And they're like, okay. why don't you move? And I'm like, it's where Can't. the industry is. <laughs> like, My favorite thing is when people ask me about you, like, checking in about you. And they're like, oh, she lives in L.A. Does she love it? And I tell them, no, she hates it. And then the people <laughs> just kind of are like, they don't know what to say. That's not what they thought I was going to say. They don't know what to do with that. <laughs> I would think there's it's like big enough though that there are subcultures. I actually really don't know LA very well. So mm. um I and I you know, so I I should not be like No, making, it sucks. It's no, okay. You no, can you say should it. shit on LA. <laughs> no, but you I just I would just think that it's a big enough place that you could find like subcultures and like communities within yeah. the yeah, prevailing culture yeah. there. There is it's kind of at the point where I'm like, I'm just oh, what's the word? I'm like uh like I accept that I live here and it's like we got to we got to figure out what the best way to live here is 
for me as someone who maybe if I had the choice wouldn't necessarily live here and then people are always like oh like if you did have the choice where would you go and I'll be I'm like I don't know because I've never I've never like I've always known that this was what I was gonna do so like I've never considered Mm -hmm. where where else I would go anyway um (laughs) well on on the note of just LA though like I know some people who they're married now but they weren't when when they bought this house where it's it's two couples that share a house together and a large part of that is a financial need because living in LA is so expensive but then they also you know have this like cool platonic setup where like they're fully grown adults they have careers they're married they have a dog and it's like and but they live in the same home and they cohabitate and they have just like this cool relationship and i'm like more more of this please not because it's necessary necessarily but because people want to <laughs> yeah i mean i i have definitely heard lots of stories about things like this in the bay area where it is so expensive and i do think that kind of ne- what is it necessity for its invention or whatever the i know i'm getting yeah. it a little bit wrong but um that people are forced to come up with like novel ways to pool resources when like everything's really expensive. Um, and you know, I just like to try to make a disclaimer that I am not a person who's like, there's one right way to do everything. Like, I think that's what the the kind of problem is, is being told there's one right way to do things. So I'm not saying like having a nuclear family and living in the suburbs or, you know, any of the, like these sort of things that are currently very aspirational for a lot of people is, I don't think that's a problem. I, um, I just sort of want there to be more options on the table that are seen as legitimate and where you're not viewed as like lesser for pursuing them. Um, and I, I think that far more people than maybe currently entertain an option like living with friends could find it enormously fulfilling. Um, but it doesn't, occur to people because we don't really have a lot of examples of it or it's kind of seen as like oh you have roommates and you're in your 30s or your 40s or whatever like it's it's um it's not something that you you know is obvious to people that you would choose to do because it is this kind of added benefit to your life um so i certainly hope that that it is um something that more people consider uh, as a slate of like different options that they could have that that might work for them i think some people view it as like a very black and white thing where it's like you know, if you're gonna live in a, a in a in a different setup, it we're suggesting that you live on a combine with like <laughs> with like a whole bunch of different people, and it's like no, like there are so many ways to customize uh, your life and your relationships, and that you know is is really what this book is about. Yeah, I don't think you have to go like there. There's a whole range of like what anything under the umbrella of like communal or co living or co housing is and it doesn't have to go all the way to like sharing all of your income and you know uh, yeah you don't it, have to it, join a cult you don't have to form a cult you don't have to do cult, any of that cults and communes are also not the same thing but yeah you don't have to <laughs> i i was i recently learned a lot about the jonestown massacre so like i just really have it on on my mind <laughs> good it's just a fact it's just a fact um I love that. Well, I'm very surprised to hear that, Sarah. And on the note of surprise, excellent <laughs> segue. Raina, was there anything that when you were either interviewing people or just doing research on like the history of friendships that really surprised you? Just something that you had never thought about before? I mean, I I think like the this really extensive, like going way far back history of friendship being regarded in this different way than we 
do now in a place like the US in 2024, where friendship is is pretty much a peripheral relationship in a lot of people's uh, kind of perspectives. Uh, and it is a private one, one where you like, you know, you spend time with your friends, but you aren't going to make a big ceremony out of it to commit to the other person. Um, so that's the way we see things now. You can look back to like starting in the fourth century where monks would pair off and have these spiritual unions together, which would later turn into um, a, a kind of um, it's a brother making ritual. It's a very, it's a word that like I cannot pronounce for the life of me. It's like a Delphi poesis or something like that. I have tried and failed to pronounce it correctly, but it's something along those lines um, uh, that, you know, you can see versions of all over the world um, and like, you know, going back to things, periods like the eighth century where two men would walk into a church and put their hands one on top of each other on top of the gospels and the priest would say a blessing over them and then declare them brothers for the rest of their lives or even like beyond uh, beyond their life into death. And, um, you know, family and friends and others might be present for this. Um, it was a way of turning friends into kin. And the, this was sort of, was just part of like a broader uh, reality where there were different, like you didn't just have marriage as a way to commit to different people that you could also become, you know, have godparents. And there were, um, there were other kinds of ways that people could be turned into um, sort of like a, official ties. Um, and I think just knowing that this has been going on, this was going on for so long. And now we have this, these very different ideas about friendship as kind of ephemeral and peripheral. It like just really underscored for me that we could, we could like see it totally differently in the ways that people have in the past. That was definitely one of the things in the book that struck me the most too, the especially the ceremonies of brother making. It really got me on the track of thinking like, like what kind of official things could I have around friends? Like if I'm getting married one day, like what could I do to bring friendship into the like ceremony of marriage and things like that? And yeah, just the history of knowing that I think it was just so affirming that like it's not silly to think about friendship as so important as much as you know the general society may not agree with the importance of it that no there is so much evidence that this is maybe the way we should be thinking about it because people have been doing it for so so long or at the very least that the way that we think about it is not like inherent to what friendship is that it right. is just how we have decided you know to define it now even though I think in practice, lots of people would like to have deeper friendships and might enjoy having ceremonies. But, you know, we it, it's really hard for people to make the first move out of fear of rejection. So, you know, there are just lots of situations where people like would like this, but wouldn't articulate it. I mean, I remember, you know, what comes to mind for me is a memory of sitting on a couch with a couple of my friends and I had asked them, like, do you want more physical affection in your friendships? And they both said yes. And I said, would you initiate physical affection in your friendships? And they both said no. And I was like, well, like, that's going to be <laughs> that's going to be hard. And then we're all just like sitting there, like not like that physically close to each other. I'm like, OK, so do we like are is one of us going to initiate physical affection now? <laughs> like, like, how will this all work? And um, so, I, you know, I think at least realizing that it is possible to treat friendship differently might make it a little bit easier to imagine that other people might want the same thing. And so it's not such a stretch to maybe be the the one to try to move a friendship in that direction. Yeah. And I also really appreciated, you know, we talked about like the, the ceremonies of brother making, but like, there's a lot of just history and historical context in this book that describes the types of 
um, relationships and partnerships that were normal and normalized uh, in in the past. And it really just highlights how all of these these things that society tells us are innate, that they're, you know, how everything's always been, you know, our conceptions of relationships, of masculinity, of love generally, they're actually so profoundly recent that it's shocking sometimes like when when you were writing about how you know i believe it was like 1749 in england you know men still kissed as a standard greeting and then only like 30 years later that had been replaced with handshakes but the adoption was slower in the united states so i was like okay so like the ritual of men greeting each other via handshake is younger than the united states like and so like thinking about it that way i was like not to say that people didn't ever shake hands before the United States was formed, but y'all get it. <laughs> um, like, just thinking about that, like, really highlights, like, how much of this is new. And there are these, like, timeless ideas that people who are, you know, making decisions now, I, I feel like I, the, the, like, zillennial in me wants to just, like, blame it on baby, boomer, baby boomers. <laughs> but, you know, there are these people of all generations who make these claims, this isn't actually timeless at all. Because, you know, their parents and their grandparents may have actually been the first to embrace them. Um, and it was just really interesting seeing, like, the actual history and, like, timeline of that sort of thing. And one of the things that I, I find um, kind of interesting is seeing what we can learn from history and, that, and not assuming that history is linear and that we're always moving in this more kind of progressive place that um, – just like concepts change over time or there are which can you know there are different possibilities and it and anyway, it's it's a little complicated because some of the stuff that was the, the ways that men could interact or women could interact in same-sex relationships was also tied to like not having the granular language we have now around sexuality and identity so there are some trade-offs but there were also you know there were some kind of some freedoms and I think it's just uh it like can be really instructive to and and like can make us much more creative to see okay how have people in this case like experienced relationships and emotions and things that we think of as really fixed now like what do those look like in the past and is there anything that's familiar to us or like are there concepts that we can revive i i had actually initially thought about this as like a project about romantic friendships and that that was what this was about and i ended up changing over time um, or, or just to, I'll say that romantic friendship is this historical term for a kind of like really intimate same-sex friendship. And those, you know, were common up until about the 20, turn of the 20th century. And then I ended up sort of changing how, I, like what I was looking at. It wasn't so much the emotion with the commitment. Um, so I didn't use that term, but I think it's like, even knowing that this idea existed felt like actually really helpful for, to make sense of my own friendship. And the fact that it did feel like, had a, had a lot of like the flutters of romance, but it didn't have a sexual component and it very much was a, you know, is a friendship. Um, so history basically has a lot to teach us. Yeah. And it's so important to look at history in its whole because like something that I just as someone who's coming at this from like a queer perspective um, in the, you know, sections where you're discussing how, you know, same sex affection was more normalized in part because the sexes were so like separated and so i was like okay that's still a that's a very binary view of gender and that sort of thing so like we've definitely made strides in um kind of removing those like male and female as the only two boxes but that has also had you know 
a, a negative impact on specifically the way men can feel that it's socially acceptable to display their affection for each other. And so, like, it's always just, like, two steps forward, one step back, two steps back, one step forward. Like, it's all it's all just, like, a, a, a complex, complicated thing. Um, but knowing more about it is is a really great just background to have. I'm glad that was the experience, yeah. I think it was so important that you also talked about how we look at those historical moments now. You talked about kind of the um, – I think there was a story about a historian looking at these two – I think they were monks or priests that had a very close relationship. And at first he was like, these men are definitely gay. These are gay men because they had, um, I think, like burial plots next to each other. And he did a lot of research and found that, no, they were friends that had had this, you know, very – um, close relationship and they had this ceremony and you kind of talk about the risk of overcorrection of looking back at these very close same-sex relationships and immediately saying like oh they're gay like the kind of the joke we have about like history will say they were roommates or whatever and it's difficult because I think you know as queer people we really want this representation of queer people throughout history we also have to remember they didn't have these words. Like the word gay was not around until very recently. Well, it meant something different. Throughout. Well, it meant something different. <laughs> yeah. But like, the you know, the idea of queerness. And so, you know, I think I even fall into that trap now where I'll see two like modern celebrities and be like, oh, my God, gay. And it's like, well, why can't I just let them be friends? You know, like, um, so I think that was a really important point to make of like, yes, it's great to see queer representation. It's great to see those same-sex relationships. But you also need to allow room for things that don't have anything to do with sex or romance, that they are purely friendships. And I, I would argue that that's still queer representation because it's it's a queering of the status quo. It's like even if they're not a spec, like the the, you know, perspective that we're coming at it from, you know, that's still it like it's a it's a queering of what we understand like relationships and partnerships to be. So like it is still queer representation. And there are going to be people out there who are like it's not representation unless gay people kissing. are kissing. And I'm like, <laughs> we, we really, you know, it's important to us that we start to look beyond that. Um, and having this framework is is a great place to, to kind of start doing that. Yeah. I mean, this was so hard for me. I like to figure out how to thread the needle really carefully. Like you guys have the advanced copy. There's, there's like a footnote that I've changed in the final copy that I agonized over about like how to, you know, like, how do we think about these, these relationships? Like, I, like, I'm, you know, part of the, of the queer umbrella, I'm bi, like, I would, you know, love nothing more to be able to look, look back in history and find people who, um, you know, had similar desires that I did. And, and it would have been nice if I'd encountered those, like, when I was younger, um, and kind of t doing stock history when I was in, in school. But, um, yeah, I just, I think that the, like, there is a risk of overcorrection. And I was asked just the other day by somebody like, oh, do you think people, you know, sexualize these friendships out of homophobia? And I was like, well, you know, it actually can cut both ways. Like, I think sometimes there's, um, there's, uh, I, I don't know, a salaciousness that can maybe come from a place of homophobia where people like, which, uh, which affected like these straight men, for instance, who I write about where they're, um, boss was essentially gossiping about whether these men were in a romantic relationship. And I don't think that that's coming from a good place um, for, for that person. But I do think that there is a, you know, a way that like you can 
come from a really good place of being like, we don't want to straight wash history anymore. And like, let's call these relationships what they were. Um, but I think it is, it is complicated because the, uh, to know exactly what happened in any number of these romantic friendships or Boston marriages, because like the, the, some core concepts were not the same as they are now. Like, you know, as one historian puts it, like people did not assume that you like in order to love, you also had to lust after somebody that those could be distinct. So I am trying to be really careful to chart this line where I'm like, I'm sure some of these like same sex friendships were in fact sexual relationships, you know, what appeared, you know, things that appear to be friendships. But I, I think it's very likely that like not all of them were. And that actually like considering the possibility that these were friendships and occupy this kind of in-between territory um, can, can teach us much more than assuming, you know, than slotting them all into this box of a sexual relationship. Right. Also, just from an A-spec perspective, looking at history, like we want to have this queer representation and, you know, you have to kind of make educated, dis like not decisions, but educated guesses about, you know, how people may have felt attraction or identified because, as you mentioned, like these terms as we know them today just didn't exist in the same form. And I think that's especially difficult with A-spec identities because not only did the terms not necessarily exist, but because A-spec identities are in absence of a certain type of attraction, it's very hard to retroactively put that on someone, especially someone who you can't speak to. And and so I think, you know, it's that's part of the reason why A-spec representation now is so important because, you know, to have that, you know, explicit uh discussion of how people feel is is so helpful and you know looking to the past to see these like you know relationships that may have been queer in some way like people are often so eager to jump to like oh it was gay oh it was whatever because they want to see themselves seen in that but sometimes that can lead to like potential erasure of like more i don't want to say complex or more complicated identities but like identities that might fall under the a-spec umbrella so like it's it's all it's a very it's a very difficult balance to achieve <laughs> um yeah. and so i just i don't know that's it that's the the end <laughs> well it just it sounds like really frustrating to know mm -hmm. like sh surely like you know david j was not the first person who like was ace but um the, like people have been ace you know or like been on the spectrum forever but like if you just like the people who I told you about and who I write about in my book where they're like, we want ancestors or we want elders, um, like that that sounds just really um, difficult to like to know that there are A-spec people but not be able to point to them. And like it's it's even hard to do the reading between the lines that maybe people who are like looking at somebody who's like um, aloe but lesbian like would be more – could make a, a, a sort of strong stronger case for, I guess. Yeah. It's all complicated and complex, and again, I'm just glad that we have, you know, the resources and the books and the conversations that we're having now, so that hopefully, you know, we we, we become those elders for people, which is a nice thought. Uh, Kayla didn't like it. She didn't like thinking about I think that's old. it's a lot of stress to be put on to become an elder, I, don't, I think. I don't, I don't know I if don't, I'm ready for that responsibility. <laughs> I don't mean it in, like, the sense of, like, you know, you know we are the experts. We are 
yep. the elders, capital T, capital E. I just mean it in like that younger people who, you know, identify with similar identities or have similar relationship structures as the ones you talk about in the books, have older people to look at to say, oh, yeah, this is normal. This can be done. Here are options. Here is someone who's actually been through it. I'm just not ready to have children. I'm sorry, Sarah. I'm going to stamp on your forehead <laughs> the elder. Trademark. Copyright. It's not ready. I'm just not. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what it's to so tell you. It's embarrassing to have this conversation in front of Raina. <laughs> I don't sorry, know what to Sarah. tell I'm you. I'm not ready for this next step in our relationship. I never said I anything I just feel about like kids. I created a problem that I didn't exist like an hour ago. <laughs> I never said anything about kids. I just said getting older as human people. I'm it happens every day. Older. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, Kayla, is there anything podcast about it? (laughs) Is there anything else you want to hit on? I mean, I could really talk about this book for like literal hours. There were so many things that came up that I was like, this could be a full episode, this could be a full episode. Like there's so many topics that are so relatable to the ASPEC experience, but also you know, like this book is obviously not just for ASPECs. There is so much that is so relevant to anyone that has ever had a friend. Um, Which I would so argue I'm sure we will be coming. pretty much everyone. I would hope ninety nine point nine percent of the human population. Yeah. So I'm sure we will be returning to topics from this book in future episodes. But yeah, um, yeah I would highly recommend reading it, especially to Aspects. I think mm. it's just going to feel very familiar and very validating, and just kind of I don't know, give extra evidence to things that I think all of us are already kind of thinking about. But mm. now there's like solid, like okay, yes, there is historical proof for this there are other people that feel this way it's just very and it yeah and, validating. It, and it gives credence to the idea that you know as we talk about in our book like the aspec lens it comes obviously from an aspec perspective and what we learn about ourselves because of our asexual and aromantic spectrum identities but it applies to everyone it you know the things we learn from that lens can apply to everyone and so seeing in your book all of these people who, as far as I'm aware, only one person who you talked about in your book identified as A-spec. Um, everyone else was, some of them were straight, some of them were lesbian, some of them identified entirely, you know, there's a whole a whole slew of different ways people identified. And so I think being able to see those like concrete examples of like, it's not just us, like there, everyone can really be benefited by this. And, you know, it's 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 the sort of thing that like when you're doing your aspec ted talk to someone and they're like give me evidence you're like okay i have a book for you <laughs> like it's not just us um and i honestly i think that that is a really important thing i remembered one more question that i have for you you when you're talking about these like in these chapters you mention several times that you visited these people in person and like went to their homes and spoke to them there um was that always the intention? Like, what, what, why? I mean, I know you're a journalist, so I'm sure, like, that's your preferred way of, <laughs> why? <laughs> I'm sure that's your preferred way of doing it. But, like, you know, how, how important was that to you for the process? Well, I started reporting the book in 2019. So, mm-hmm. did I start in 2018? I did my first interviews in 2019. Um, yeah. So, before the pandemic, and uh, I, you know, it hadn't occurred to me that I, like, I don't know that I wouldn't be able to visit people's homes, but mm-hmm. um, you just learn so much from people being in person with them. And the kinds of interviews that I do uh, take hours and hours. And yeah. and also I'm like talking to people over time and people's uh, kind of stamina is much higher when it's in person. And you just like, 
see things, especially when people are living together, um, that and you see how they interact in real life. There's just like it, it's uh, I, I didn't get to meet every single person in person, um, but almost everyone I did. And, you know, like there's a like a bit of there's a scene that that I describe in the book that happened just about a year ago. It was like one of the last things I put in the book where I went to a, a New Year's party that um, a few of these friends hosted. And like we were I mean, this, this was this was on a very kind of like a spec theme about like, what is romance? <laughs> like, how do we even define what this thing is? And why does it matter? And I was talking to this group of friends. And then like, as people are coming into this party, one of the women who I was interviewing was just asking people as they were taking off their coats, like, how do you define romance? And then I was just like, ended up in all these different, like kind of sub conversations about this, which ended up being really illuminating. Um, and also it just like, I get, I felt like I understood, like, you know, this was this person I read about Grace. Like, I feel like I understood her as a person much better, just spending a, like a few hours with her kind of like, it like not in a stage setting of an interview, but just like her existing around her friends. Um, so, you know, to the extent possible, I think being in person, um, it, it's sometimes hard to justify from the outset because you're like, I don't really know what I'm going to get that's going to be different, but I just know I'm going to get something. Yeah, like and I'm gonna this, this seems expensive. This seems like, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to understand something about these people that I will be able to transmit about them mm-hmm. um, in a much richer way. Because, you know, as I was saying earlier, I just like I think really having people under, like understand the people and their relationships is so important to treating them like not as others, but like, or, you know, othering, but like as people that they can totally relate to. Yeah. Kayla, what is our poll for this week? We won't ask, have you read Raina's book? Because this is going to, this is going to come out just before it comes out. But have you pre-ordered? You can pre-order it. Have you pre-ordered Raina's book? Have you spoken to your local library and expressed your interest in it so that they will pre-order it? it. If you work at a library, have you pre-ordered it for your library? (laughs) All important questions. I did not pay you guys to say this. So just just to be clear. (laughs) No, we've gotten very. We're we talk about we make people buy our book all the time. We now, make so them. Like we, we, we make sounds them. Sounds like we're like holding so them f- at gunpoint. We and we are. Oh, so I feel like we've become uh, wow. very good at. I didn't realize either pitch. of us were gun owners. No, I'm not. It could have been neither. Anyway, okay. <laughs> um, what's the poll? Have you pre-ordered it? Okay, I'll think of something better than that. <laughs> but. Also include that to get people to do it. Okay, I you will. Can ask whether people have their own, you know, like they, if they have a QPR or. True. Yes, I know. Yeah, I know. A lot of our listeners have a lot of interest in QPRs, but yeah, we could ask. Have you ever had an an other significant other? An other significant other? Yes, exactly. Good. We're just doing our jobs for us. Clearly, there's one actual real journalist in this call, and it's either of us. <laughs> All right, Kayla. What is your beef and your juice for this week? My, I'm going to combine mine. Okay. My beef and my juice, which a I gravy. think the listeners decided was a gravy, a gravy. Yep. Um, is the game Contexto. Okay. I don't know if either of you have played it, but it's like a Wordle style game where there's like one game a day or like one word a day. And the word of the day, you have to like get to it by what like what context is used in so like you'll guess any word and it'll tell you how far away it is from being used in the same context as like the word of the day and so it's just like you can literally guess any word and so it just like takes a long time and it gets very complicated and sometimes I don't agree with the context like a couple days ago the word was liver 
And like the best word I had was like meat. So I was guessing things like chicken and whatever. And that was doing well. But like I had no idea we were talking about like a organ in the human body. <laughs> anyway, it's an incredibly frustrating game. But like it's fun. But also I hate it. But also I do have to play it every day. So that's my great. It's game. giving it's giving New York Times connections. It feels like it, a similar I do play vibe. it. I do play it after I play the connections. Yeah. I mean, I have yeah. that issue sometimes with like, because I've recently gotten into playing all the New York Times games because my sister got me a game of subscription. Um, is with like Spelling Bee and with Wordle. Like sometimes I give it a word and it's like, that's not a word. And I'm like, that is homophobic. Like, what What do you, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> that is yeah, totally Yeah, doesn't like any, like anything that's related to like, drugs anything related to sex i haven't tried many sexualities but it does not like those words and yeah. i'm like okay prude yeah the number of times i've tried on spelling bee to play clit and it doesn't let me <laughs> like that's just hateful like that's it's just, just it's like the full word though is it just that it's a i don't know like, oh that's a good question actually i bet they wouldn't take it they also won't take cunt but that's you know that's just hateful that's, that's hateful. just like Hateful against my culture as someone who likes saying the word cunt. <laughs> anyway, it's incredible. I All think right. context is pretty important there, though. Speaking that, of context. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Context. Context. You, you know, I was thinking, I was like, maybe we won't have to mark this episode as explicit. Just kidding. Um, I'll always find a way. I'll always find a way. My beef and my juice. My, my, my beef is the same as it was last week. Tomorrow, I have to move into an Airbnb for at least a week. I have not packed anything. Uh, Yay. I'm getting kicked out of my house at 8.30 in the morning. <laughs> It'll be rough. It'll um, be. My juice is I'm going to a dance class today, which is making it more stressful about um, packing because it's less time, but it will be good. Also, how are you going to watch the Lions game if you're packing? I, I will not watch the Lions game. I'm so Sarah, they might go to the Super Bowl. I know. I If they're in the Super Bowl. My other beef is that you the live Lions in a football today are, house. I d- okay, I here's don't. the problem. I know I do live in a football house, but the problem is that the Lions are playing the 49ers, which is my oh. boyfriend's team. And so he's made all of us 49ers fans. And I've never been a Lions fan because they suck, but now I am but, a Lions like, fan because, like, now they don't suck. That's so our, now that's our I'm, legacy. Because <laughs> that's, yeah, that's the whole thing. And so now I don't know what to do about You're it. You're a Lions fan. Don't don't I am let alive. him convince I'm you wearing, otherwise. Oh no, yeah, I, this is the bluest thing I own, and I'm wearing this. And I pointedly left my 49ers shirt in my closet. As and you should. Told him I was rooting for the Lions. Anyway, I might be broken up with later today. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> um. Anyway. Yes. All right, Reyna, what is your beef and your juice for this week? Uh, they are related and not quite gravy because they're sort of an opposition. Um, so the beef is that I uh, came down with a stomach flu a couple of days ago, um, which which sucks, period. But it means that I'm like still contagious and like couldn't do a thing today that I really wanted to do, which was um, uh, see some of my friends singing because uh, a couple of my friends wrote a song based on the book that is about friendship. <gasps> That is called Dear Friend. And uh, as part of like the recording process, they're having friends do, other friends do backup vocals. So I had to miss out on that. Um, but the song is oh, going to be. That's so sweet. That's so it's, cool. it's like such a good song. It is like um, kind of crazily catchy. So yeah, I'm I just sad that, that I can't witness it. Oh. So is it, co- is the song like officially being released? For everyone to hear, it, it, it will it be. Stay? Yeah, it is. It's like in the this. It, it, it was very DIY and is like turned into 
uh, you know, more of a, <laughs> a production, I guess. Um, a couple of my friends who have written songs, like they're government officials by day, but they like do a lot of songwriting and they've done written songs for friends' weddings where they'll like interview the couple and then like make a song for them that they'll perform. Oh, cute. And my friend was telling me one day that she was kind of tired of writing love songs. And I was like, well, you want to write a song about friendship? You could use my book as, you know, inspiration. And they were really into it. And then I loved the song. And then we started talking about like, you know, having a friend, another friend be the drum, like who's on the, who I write about on the first page of the book, like drumming, um, like backup. And then they have a friend who's a professional and very talented music producer. So he's producing the song. And then this like backup vocals thing came, you know, came to be. So it's like, uh, yeah, my friends were inspired by a book about friendship to write a book or to write a song about friendship and involves other friends. So friends are so cool. <laughs> That's so fun. We will, I'm going to keep my eye out for that song because I know our listeners are always complaining about how there's too many love songs and there's no songs about friends yeah. so that's that's a big part of the reason exactly. that like we wanted it to exist um i think it'll be out in time for the uh in time for the release of this and i will send you the i think it should be on spotify <gasps> oh by gosh. then Stellar. i'm so excited all right well you can tell us about your beef or your juice on our social media at sounds fake pod uh reyna where can the people of the internet find you they can uh, find out things about me by reading my book, The Other Significant Others, Reimagining Life with Friendship at the Center. Um, and if you're listening to this before February 13th, you can pre-order it. And afterwards, you can order you know, order it or buy it in a bookstore. Um, and then I'm like at Raina Cohen on Instagram, nominally on X <laughs> these days. Um, I have a substack called Related that uh, writing the book has made it hard for me to write regularly, but I am still trying to write about kind of um, uh, the social sciences is, is sort of the the idea there. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where you can find me on the internet Delightful. and, and, and on the page and like in a book right. form. Yeah. The most important <laughs> place in the book. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, in addition to spending your money, your hard earned money on Raina's book which she worked so hard on i swear to god y'all she worked so hard on it buy it you have to buy it you have to <laughs> um in addition to that if you want to for some reason give me and kayla money you can do that on our patreon <laughs> patreon.com a lot less hard <laughs> but you can still do it god. um sarah from the future will give you the patrons hi this is sarah from the future the lions uh did not win they did not win. So uh, go Chiefs, I guess. Our $5 patrons who we are promoting this week are Jennifer Smart, Joch, or possibly Josh, or possibly Hosh. Hosh. It's probably not Hosh. I don't think it's Hosh. <laughs> Jolly Lisbert, Catherine Bailey, and Kelly um, are, again, our $5 patrons. Sorry uh, for any name butchering that does happen. Um, our $10 patrons who are promoting something this week are Arkness, who would like to promote the Trevor Project, Benjamin Abara, who would like to promote tabletop games, Selena Dobson, who would like to promote the Critical Role Foundation, and David Harris, who would like to promote the Cradle book series by Will White. Our other $10 patrons are Derek and Carissa, Elle Bitter, my Aunt Jeannie, Kayla's dad, Maff, Martin Giselle, Parker, Purple Haze, Barefoot Backpacker, Song of Storm, Val, Allison, and Ani. Our $15 patrons are Ace, who would like to promote the writer Crystal Scherer. Oh my god. Ace, who would like to promote the writer Crystal Scherer. Nailed it. 
Andrew Hillam, who would like to promote the Invisible Spectrum podcast. Tia Chappelle, who would like to promote twitch.tv slash Dia. Hector Murillo, who would like to promote, promote suppress, friends that are supportive, constructive, and help you grow as a better person. Nathaniel White, who would like to promote NathanielJWaitDesigns.com. And Kayla Zantnina, who would like to promote KateMaggartArt.com. Our $20 patrons are Dragonfly and my mom, who, since my mom has not told me yet what she wants to promote, they are both together going to promote microwave popcorn. I just think it's good. Thanks for listening. Tune in next Sunday for more of us in your ears. Nope. Wait. That's not... <laughs> Sorry. For a second, I forgot I was Sarah from the future. Back to the past! Thanks, Sarah from the future. Your microphone quality was bad. Uh, okay. <laughs> What's next? I got so thrown off by preemptively announcing the poor quality of my microphone. Okay. Thanks for listening. Rana. thank you so much for writing this book and for joining us and for being a part of this, the conversation. Um, <laughs> With capital T and capital C? Yes, exactly. Yes, the conversation. By the elders. The elders. <laughs> Everyone buy Rana's book um, and tune in next Sunday for more of us in your ears. Until then, take good care of your cows. If they can read, get them this book. If they can't, you could read if it they to can't them. read, read the book to them. I think that would be soothing. Yeah, I, I think so too. There's an audiobook that where you could just hear me read for almost nine oh hours. Ev- all of the above. <laughs> yes. Play the audiobook while you also read it at the same time. Perfect.